0: previously on White Lies,
1: And then a car full of white men pulled up and stopped right behind the ambulance. And I remember a rush of feeling, Clark, you just have to get out of here, just run.
2: I understand you wanted to talk to me about whatever it is, save me out of it. I think they killed a man on the way to Birmingham. I, I, I just I always will believe it.
1: But you notice every layer of the onion, there's something a little whacker than the first layer underneath. And you ain't, what, halfway through the onion yet?
0: Toward the end of the trial for the murder of Jim Reeb, the defense attorney Joe Pilcher spoke to reporters on the steps of the Dallas County Courthouse.
1: And Reverend Reeb
2: did not receive proper medical attention and that he was negligently and you might almost say wantonly permitted to die.
0: Pilcher's defense strategy was to argue that the civil rights movement was in need of a white martyr and that the attack on Jim Reeb, the unitarian minister from Boston, had provided the perfect opportunity for the movement to get one. That somehow, some way, the movement had conspired to kill Reeb. You said this morning in court that they willfully let him die. That was my statement. Yes. Did you mean that, sir? I mean that the evidence
1: indicates that, yes, sir.
0: When the reporter pushed him on this claim, did you really mean that, sir? Pilcher replied, that's what the evidence indicates. Look at the evidence. That evidence Pilcher presented at
3: trial, that's what Saul Tepper documented in his open letter to make the case for the conspiracy theory that the movement had had a hand in killing Jim Reeb. We told you last episode about Tepper, Selma's notorious propagandist. Here he is in an interview he did with a historian in the 1980s.
1: Because so Selma was the most integrated place in, in, in the United States anyway. We love the black people down here. You may not believe that. We got along with them. Black people lived right next to me. Some of them lived in my backyard. But when we'd come to forcing it down our throat. That's what we resented. I guess it was a principle.
3: Yeah, I know. So that open letter Saul Tepper wrote in early 1966, the letter we were given in the Confederate Memorial Circle, In that letter, Tepper makes three main claims to prop up the conspiracy theory about Reeb. So we decided to fact-check these claims. And as we were doing this, we looked for the tape recordings Tepper mentioned in the
0: letter. Remember, Tepper claimed to know so much about the case because, he wrote in the letter, the judge allowed him to tape record the entire trial. Tepper's passing mention of these tapes was like a dangling thread, a thread that we hoped could connect us back to that moment in 1965. But once we started pulling on this thread, we realized it had become woven into the fabric of life here in the years since. And so as we followed the thread, we began to unravel a strange and illuminating story about Selma then and now. From NPR, this is White Lies. I'm Chip Brantley.
3: And I'm Andrew Beck, Grace.
4: Let's play some games, everybody. Are you looking for the answer to life's funnier questions? There's naked, and then there's Canadian naked. <laughs> Every week, we blend comedy, trivia, and a special celebrity interview.
1: All right, all right, all right.
4: Ask Me Another from NPR.
3: In the winter of 1965, Vicki Levi was a medical student at Yeshiva University in Queens when she heard about an opportunity to go provide medical care for civil rights workers in the South. She'd never been South before.
2: You know, there were so many different impressions that I had, but it was... You were going into a different world, clearly into a different world, where you were singled out as being um,
3: somebody who should be targeted. That was my feeling, Yeah. that, that this is a treacherous country. She was in Selma for Bloody Sunday and was herself chased after the march by state troopers and Sheriff Jim Clark's possemen. She escaped by running into the home of a black family and hiding behind their couch. During her time in Selma, she wrote a report analyzing the medical facilities in town. Can I look through my notes for one yes, second? Yes, please. Yeah. Oh, okay, hang on.
2: Just give me a chance to do that. Yeah.
3: Sorry. The first claim Tepper makes to try to prove that the movement martyred Reeb has to do with where they took him for medical care in Selma. Tepper wrote, quote, Selma has three fine hospitals, very modern, but arrangements were made at the time to take the three ministers to the Burwell Infirmary. The Burwell Infirmary is not even classified in the modern sense as an up-to-date hospital, but it is an old wooden structure that reminds me of a run-down residence." I write
2: in my note here, the Burwell Infirmary, an all-Negro institution, understaffed, overcrowded, run-down building with less than 30 available
3: beds. So Tebra was right about the Burwell Infirmary. It wasn't even a hospital. It was a kind of rundown clinic in one of Selma's black neighborhoods. But he's wrong in suggesting that Reeb could have gone anywhere. Two of Selma's three hospitals were for white people only. And even though Reeb was white, he was there in support of black voting rights. And in the same way that Jim Reeb's reason for being in Selma made him unwelcome in white-owned restaurants, taking him to a white hospital wasn't even considered. Remember, Reeb was attacked just two days after Bloody Sunday and those who needed medical attention after the attack on the bridge, black and white, were treated in Selma's black medical facilities.
2: Let me tell you this. After Bloody Sunday, all those white folk were at our hospital. They did not take them to a white hospital. They put them in black areas because of them being here to support us or support them.
0: That's Vera Booker. She worked as a nurse at Good Samaritan, a recently renovated hospital run by the city's Catholic mission. Vicki Levi also wrote about Good Samaritan in her report on medical conditions in Selma.
2: The Good Samaritan Hospital, built and run by Selma's Catholic mission, has a policy of serving all races, but which in reality is used only by the Negro community and boycotted by local white patients.
3: So the choice of where to take Reeb really came down to Burwell or the Good Samaritan Hospital. So why wasn't Reeb taken to Good Samaritan? It's a good question. The main reason is that Burwell had been a fixture in the black community for decades, and black ambulance drivers were generally loyal to what had been, for a long time, the only black clinic in town. Burwell
2: was the a little black hospital for years, even when I came here. Uh-huh. Uh,
3: before Good Samaritan was that Burwell was. In fact, one of the drivers who transported Reeb, his mother owned and ran Burwell for over 40 years. So that's where Reeb was taken, to the Burwell Infirmary. For this to seem strange, you'd have to ignore decades
0: of habit and tradition. When Reeb arrived at Burwell, he was first examined by a nurse named Princess Anderson. What were your thoughts as you began to examine him?
2: got believe this man gonna die. That was my thought.
0: It looked that serious to you at that time?
2: Yeah. Look, at my mother-in-law right there, and she, she took over. She, uh... <laughs> she was, you know, had this, this grim look on her face, and the uh, doctor or Dinkin came in and said, We got to take him right now to Birmingham.
0: The doctor quickly determined that Reeb's injuries were so serious he needed a neurosurgeon. And there wasn't one in all of Selma. So Tepper's first claim that Reeb's death was hastened by intentionally taking him to an inferior clinic it's simply wrong. Good Samaritan or Burwell, it did not matter. We would have been sent to Birmingham regardless of where he was sent in Selma. Saul Tepper died in 1995, but his letter and the
3: counter-narrative it had espoused, it kept going. And so we kept going, too. And that always led us back to the tapes Tepper allegedly made of the trial. When we got in touch with his family, still living around Selma, they said, nope, don't know anything about tapes. But then a Tepper family friend we talked to mentioned that Saul's lawyer was at one time a man named Alston Keith. He, too, died many years ago. But his son, who is also a lawyer and whose name is also Alston Keith, said he had some of his dad's old files in a storage unit behind his law office. It had been years since anyone had set foot in it. Around the office, they referred to it as the jungle. Alston Keith Jr. didn't think he had anything that would have belonged to Saul, but he was interested in what we were up to and said that we were welcome to take a look. So on a cold, clear winter morning, we stopped
1: right. by. You see how far that goes down, too. Yeah, that's,
3: uh, I can see how it uh, has not been accessed in quite <laughs> a while.
0: So this used to be the Keith's house, is that right? It used to be his mom and dad's, okay. the grandparents' house. Okay.
2: And, and this, I assume this used to be the servant's place.
3: Okay. Huh.
0: All right. No light. Enter at your own risk. Saul Tepper and Austin Keith's father were two leaders of the Dallas County Citizens Council, an all-white group of businessmen and civic leaders who opposed any form of integration. In the 1950s and 60s, these Citizens Councils were common all over the South. One historian described them as pursuing the agenda of the Klan with the demeanor of the Rotary Club. At the Dallas County Citizens Council's first meeting, Austin Keith pledged to make it difficult, if not impossible, for any black person who advocated for desegregation to find and hold a job, get credit, or get a mortgage. And the group, which included the mayor, several judges, and the editor of the Selma Times-Journal, once published a full-page ad in the paper inviting readers to, quote, ask yourself an important question. What have I personally done to maintain segregation? Oh my God. I can't describe how,
3: this is a, you can't, you actually can't walk through here, I don't, I'm not sure what they're ever even gonna do with this. I mean, there's someone has thrown an air conditioning unit right
0: in our path, basically. After only a few minutes of rummaging through Austin Keith's garage, we did find some boxes of old cassette tapes, but I was the only one getting my hopes up. Right, these no- are the, This dude, I'm telling you, this these recordings, Mamas and the Papas and Neil Diamond, Jimmy Buffett. I hate to be the Gordon bearer. Lightfoot. I hate to be the bearer of obvious news, but that's not. But you know how I had tapes where I would like record the Indiana Hoosiers playing mm-hmm. in the national championship game against the Syracuse Orangemen, and then maybe record every part of it because all I wanted to watch was Keith Smart's jumper at the buzzer to win the national championship. But I might use the rest of that tape to record an episode of The Simpsons.
3: Uh huh. Sure.
0: So what I'm saying is, this is tape that says Gordon Lightfoot and the models of the Papa's I think it really has could actually be...
3: Gordon Lightfoot it? That's not Tepper tapes, I'm just telling you.
0: Did you hear what Andy said there? The Tepper tapes? That's what we'd started calling them. We'd taken this brief mention of a recording referenced in a passing line from a letter written more than 50 years ago. A letter by a well-known propagandist. And we had named this possibly non-existent recording so that it seemed real. So that it could become something we could keep looking for. But after a while of searching, even I could see the Tepper tapes were not here in the storage shed that used to be Austin Key's grandparents' servants' quarters. I didn't want to admit it, really. But Andy was getting cold and hungry. And when he gets cold and hungry, he gets fussy.
3: This is really stupid. Let's get out of here. This is... It's a good thing you're wearing your mountain climbing jacket. I'm telling you. Protect me from... uh, I think you need some protection from your own stupid
0: ideas too. Does it include any of that? I don't think there's a jacket for that. It's too late. Too late.
3: Sometimes when I find myself on wild goose chases with Chip Brantley, I'm reminded of Raymond Chandler's iconic detective Philip Marlowe. The protagonist of Chandler's crime stories from the 30s and 40s, Marlowe is basically the archetype for the film noir private eye. These stories invariably start with Marlowe, minding his own business until trouble walks into his office. He knows not to get involved, but he can't help himself. And soon, things have spiraled far beyond his control. In this case, I'm Marlowe, minding my own business, trying to be a good reporter, and Chip, he's the trouble that walks into my office and turns everything upside down.
0: Saul Tepper's second big claim in his letter is that those with Reeb intentionally delayed getting him to University Hospital in Birmingham, that they permitted him to die so that the civil rights movement would have a white martyr to help get voting rights legislation passed. The first 90 minutes between 7.30 p.m. and 9 p.m. when Reeb is still inside Selma city limits, this part of the timeline is mostly undisputed by Tepper. The part of the trip that he's here is in on comes next as the ambulance sets off up Highway 22 for Birmingham. You may remember that the ambulance had a flat tire outside of town, and this incident will become the focal point for this part of Tepper's alternate theory of the night.
3: Tepper cites a defense witness named John South, who testified that that night he'd stopped in at a filling station on his way home from work when he saw an ambulance drive by an ambulance driving very slowly. It was headed in the same direction as South's house, so what the heck, he followed it. But something strange happened. The ambulance turned around and headed back toward town. So South did too. And when the ambulance pulled into the parking lot of a radio station, South was right behind it. He went up to the ambulance and asked the driver of the ambulance what the deal was. Flat tire, the driver said. But, and this is perhaps the most crucial part of the defense's case, South will testify at the trial that he checked the ambulance and found no flat tire. Remember, the trial was in December of 65, a full nine months after the attack. South had refused to give a statement to the FBI, but told the agent that he had already given a statement to the Alabama state troopers just 10 days after Reed was killed. What had he told those investigators about the flat? After some back and forth with the state police, they finally found the report we were looking for. And after some wrangling, they allowed us to see the files in a nondescript conference room in an office tower in downtown Montgomery.
0: Here, you, want look, you want to come over here? You want yeah. To pull a chair off, yeah?
3: Okay. They wouldn't let us copy the files, but they did allow us to bring our tape recorder. So we basically narrated the entire contents to one another, while a staffer who'd been assigned to be our minder sat at the end of the conference table playing a game on her phone.
0: Statement of John H. South, white male, Route 4, Box 498, Selma, Alabama. I asked the Negro male on the passenger side what the trouble was. I understood him to say he was having tire or car trouble. There were three white males in the back, one of which lay on the cot, I again asked what the trouble was, and Ace Anderson told me they had a man with a head injury and were calling for another ambulance. About 20, 30 minutes later, another ambulance drove up. Hmm.
3: I I understood him to say Mm -hmm. he was having tire or car trouble.
0: Yeah. Hmm.
3: But nothing else. He doesn't say that he didn't see a flat. During his testimony at trial, though, he will say he specifically checked all four tires and observed no tire trouble.
0: You wouldn't think from reading that that John Southwood would turn out to be the defense's star witness.
3: Yeah. That's one of our producers, Connor O'Neill. And Connor's right. This crucial piece of evidence to substantiate the defense's claims of negligent and wanton treatment of Reeb, nowhere to be found in this document. His only statement to law enforcement.
0: The ambulance driver, Ace Anderson, he's clear about the flat tire in his statement to state investigators. Let's go through this. This is is Ace Anderson's statement.
3: The two ministers, the Reverend Reeb, myself, Dr. Dinkins, and Lee Chapman, left en route to Birmingham. I had gone about two miles when my right rear tire blew out. Right rear tire. That's the same thing Orloff says. That's what Orloff says. Up to this time, no one had
0: tried... All the men with Reeb gave sworn statements to investigators about the flat tire. Reap's two companions, Orloff Miller and Clark Olson, the driver, Ace Anderson, the doctor, William Dinkins. And they also noted that as they waited for the second ambulance, Selma police and sheriff deputies arrived at the radio station. So just play that out for a second. If there were a functional ambulance idling in the parking lot with an unconscious civil rights activist in the back and everyone in the ambulance was claiming a non-existent flat, then why don't the police testify to this later? Why don't they corroborate the account of South and say loudly and clearly there was no flat tire on that ambulance? And there's something else about this incident. There was another witness at trial who corroborated South's testimony about the flat tire. He was the owner of the filling station where South had been hanging out when he saw the ambulance pass by. The man's name was Charles Buchanan. In his letter, Tepper refers to Buchanan as a reputable witness. But in the nineteen eighties, during an interview with a historian, Tepper himself said something revealing about Buchanan Service Station. In
1: fact, he used to be a little filling station right out of some Buchanan service station. Some clan had gathered and drink beer.
3: So Buchanan's Service Station, where South had been hanging out that night, it was a known clan hangout. In John South, South was a member of Sheriff Jim Clark's notorious posse, hardly an unbiased witness. Here's what the driver of the second ambulance told state investigators on March 11th, two days after the attack. He picks up the story from the time he gets the call from the radio station. Tuesday. It was the 9th of March, approximately 9.15 when we got the call. Mm -hmm. We arrived in front of the WGWC radio station on Highway 22 north of Selma, approximately 9.25. We made the switch from Anderson's ambulance to our ambulance. The city police arrived just prior to me. There are two more. It was a little Cosmopolitan Rambler, and there seemed to be a 63 four-door Impala sedan.
0: So wait, so 9.15. 9.15 is
3: when they get the call, and then they arrive at 9.25. Changing ambulances, moving Reeb's stretcher, that takes maybe 10 minutes. So they leave the radio station around 9.35. And they arrive in Birmingham by 11. From the radio station to the hospital is exactly 84 miles, and mostly on dark, rural backroads through small towns, in a hearse, doubling for an ambulance. An hour and 20 minutes for a trip that usually takes two hours? They were flying. Here's Orloff Miller. And we careened around those curves at 60 and 70 miles an hour on the back roads until we finally got to a main highway. We did get a police escort for a few miles on the main highway from the state patrol. And uh, we actually hit 110 miles an hour at one point, heading for Birmingham. Tepper's version of events at the radio station set that story in the context of multiple corroborated statements from others who were there, too, and it falls apart completely. But the story Tepper tells in his letter doesn't bother with context.
0: The third claim Tepper makes in his letter is by far the most pernicious. It's what Pilcher, the defense attorney, had hinted at during the trial, that Jim Reeb's companions had not just let Reeb die, but had instead played an active role in his murder. Clearly, it's what the juror Billy Boozer believed at the time, and believes to this day. I think
2: they killed a man on the way to Birmingham. I, I, I just I always will believe it.
0: It's a theory meant to absolve White Selma for any responsibility for the violence. And, it turns out, this kind of theory used during the Reeb case it was nothing new. Some of
1: these people that feel and, and say these things they don't want to admit that
0: they're prejudiced and they they'll go to any length to deny it to themselves. Bill Baxley is a former attorney general of Alabama. In 1977 he gained the first conviction for one of the men who had planted the bomb at the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham which had killed four little girls. I got the state troopers file. And then later we got copies of the Birmingham police and Jefferson County sheriff's files. And it was incredible. Most of the stuff in that, all those three files were useless because most of the man hours spent
1: by the state and local authorities were aimed at investigating this
4: crazy nutty theory that the blacks had bombed themselves trying to get
1: sympathy for the cause. And, uh, some people really believed. I remember the, the, that happened. I remember hearing some people in my family that really believed the blacks were setting these bombs themselves. That, that is that's, that's stunning. But it, again, it was, it was a product of the time, and it was part of that narrative. And sometimes those stories take on a life of their own as fact.
0: That's Doug Jones. Today, he's the junior senator from Alabama. But in the early 2000s, as a U.S. attorney based in Birmingham, he gained convictions against two other men who were part of the bombing.
1: And so now when you can lay out those facts, it's important. Because in the church bombing cases, you don't hear any counter narrative other than Robert Chambliss, Bobby Frank Cherry, and Tommy Blanton bombed that church. Once you can establish those facts, and once you can demonstrate those, there will, be, there will always be those that just say it's fake, but most people of goodwill and common sense are going to look at that, and then they will come to grips with it.
3: The Alabama investigators had wasted their time in 1963 investigating local black activists when they could have been looking for the Klansmen who actually planted the bomb. The next year in Mississippi, when three civil rights workers went missing, the governor speculated that they had fled to Cuba. Their bodies were found six weeks later in an earthen dam. And in 1965, when Jim Reed was attacked in Selma, the defense attorney, Joe Pilcher, argued that the movement itself had had a hand in his killing. But where Pilcher had only hinted at this theory, Tepper's letter lays the claim bare. To justify this claim, Tepper isolates one part of Dr. William Dinkins' testimony, that in his examination of Reeb, he thought maybe the injury was just a bruise. What Tepper fails to mention is that this was the first thought Dinkins had at the very beginning of the examination. It was just a provisional diagnosis, a starting point. But then Tepper skips over the next phases of Dinkins' exam. In his statement to the FBI, Dinkins describes how he felt around the wound and began to suspect a skull fracture. How he ordered an x-ray to be taken. How right after Reeb vomited and lost consciousness in the x-ray room, Dinkins saw evidence of a blood clot. How within a matter of minutes, Dinkins had determined that Reeb was severely injured and needed to get to Birmingham to see a neurosurgeon. When we interviewed two of the University Hospital doctors who treated Reeb, they said his symptoms were classic hematoma, when veins around the brain tear, allowing blood to accumulate between the brain and the skull. This is Alan Dimmick, the admitting physician.
1: He had a big hematoma and a skull fracture, and the neurosurgeon had to operate on that. And again, because of the head injury, he was unconscious.
3: And this is James Argiers, the neurosurgeon who operated on Reeb.
4: It was obvious that he was comatose, and there was hardly any response to anything. So I just rushed him right away, right up to the operation room, and removed a large, what they call, epidural hematoma, epi. and he placed him on a respirator, I had a bad feeling that he was going to survive.
0: These kinds of injuries generally cause the brain to bleed slowly. So the symptoms, headache, confusion, loss of consciousness, and eventually life-threatening pressure on the brain, they develop over time. This explains why Jim Reeb was able to, with help, get up and stumble to safety. But the story Tepper told, it didn't track those worsening symptoms over time. Instead, Tepper froze time and pulled out two frames from the night. That first instant of Deacon's examination when he thought there might only be a bruise, and then the moment Reed was placed on the operating table in Birmingham, when the brain injury was clearly life-threatening. Tepper's reasoning here is like one of those stop-motion special effects from an old silent film, like the magician making his assistant disappear under the tablecloth. But what we found is this. Jim Reeb was hit hard on the head with a club, and then after a mad scramble to get him the medical care he needed, there was nothing anyone could do to save him. We'll be right back.
3: Hey y'all, I'm Sam Sanders. I host an NPR show called It's Been a Minute. Every Friday on the show, I talk out the week of news because sometimes the best way to process everything going on right now is through good conversation. Download the show and we'll process everything together. That Tepper succeeded in persuading white people in 1965 is not surprising. They had to go on living there to move forward and casting themselves as the victims allowed them to close ranks to cling to power however they could. It freed them from any obligation to ever reckon with what really happened to Jim Reeb. And the counter-narrative in the letter has endured because it operates on an emotional level, not a factual one. We got in the habit of just asking everybody we talked to if they knew anything about the Tepper tapes. Ever hear anything about old man Saul recording the Reeb trial? Did you ever see a big recorder in Judge Moore's courtroom? It was our lame, occasionally awkward version of Columbo's Just One More Thing gambit. Except, unlike in Columbo, the technique had never paid off. Not, at least, as it related to our search for the tapes. But we did hear some stories about Saul.
1: I've interviewed Saul mainly about putting fluoride in the water, or rat poison, as he called it. They had quite a a group of people that were against fluoride in the water. Uh, Saul Tepper Now there was a real piece of work. The Teppers, or some of them had colorful nicknames. Uh, it was Pookie Tepper was one, and somebody, if you want to talk to a crazy Tepper, you ought to go see Saul Tepper in Selma, so that's how I found it. <laughs> He was out in the woods and, and either involved with an axe or a chainsaw and cut a big hunk of his foot off, perhaps even half. And he grabbed it and took it to the hospital hoping they could sew it back on. And they stopped the bleeding and said, no, we can't do anything with it. And they just flipped it over in the garbage on his way out. And to see him, you wouldn't think he had a dime, multi-millionaire. He wore Rustler blue jeans that cost... $6.95 a pair maybe. bought a new truck every year, year and a half, and towed it up going across cow pasture. You see an old white man come down the street in a brand new truck, with like he had been in demolition derby with it. You know where the cows would run into them and stuff.
3: Stories like these can be seductive sometimes. Because in their absurdity, they seem to be describing someone who is not real. But Saul Tepper was a real person. The person who spread the conspiracy theory to absolve white Selma. Then one day, we were talking with Kim Ballard, the probate judge in Selma who was nearing retirement, but who's been on the scene for decades and had been described as one of those people we had to talk to to get the lay of the land in Selma. And suddenly, our wild goose chase started to pay off.
0: Yeah, one of the one of the rumors the, that we've heard about the trial in '65 was that Saul Tepper Sr., who is now deceased, got permission from Judge Moore to s- set up an audio recording station and basically tape get tape of the whole trial. I've
1: heard of
2: that. I uh, heard that, uh, Jim Rutledge was the one that taped it. Who's that, Jim? Jim Rutledge. He's, okay. he's dead now. He was an avid Photographer and food recordings. I've heard that.
3: Uh, you know what? I mean, did he? Someone who takes a lot of pictures and was into recordings probably kept all that stuff. Ostensibly, do you know anything about it? No.
2: Right. The house is that they lived in is uh, is for sale. It, it's they
3: had a place out back, a garage or something. Did you see any big recordings with uh, Jim Reeb, 1965, written on it or anything? I can't talk about it. (laughs) I don't know if there's a phrase to describe going down a rabbit hole and then going down an entirely different rabbit hole while you're still down the first rabbit hole, but that's what
0: happened to us after hearing the name Jim Rutledge. Some people called him Jim. Others called him Rutledge. His wife called him by his middle name, Calhoun. And for reasons that are still unclear to us, a lot of other people called him Turkey Bill. Anybody who knew Turkey Bill will tell you he was a mechanical genius. Somebody who could disassemble, fix, and put back together any machine. Turkey Bill loved antique cars, collecting them, restoring them. The thing Turkey Bill is most known for around Salma is the so-called atomic car he built. The details are murky, but legend has it that Turkey Bill had an inside source at the hospital in Salma who would pass along radioactive material, which he used to somehow power a small Chevy truck. The story goes that eventually the feds got wind of what was going on and came to Selma to investigate. But Turkey Bill had worked for a time with the Selma Police Department, and someone tipped him off that he was being investigated. So Turkey Bill puttered down to the bluff and pushed his supposedly atomic car into the Alabama River. That's just some of what we heard during the weeks we were down the Jim Rutledge rabbit hole.
3: But that same day we talked to the probate judge, Kim Ballard, actually it was right after we talked to him, we went looking for traces of Turkey Bill.
0: All right. So this is what street is this? Well, we're on McLeod. Now we're on McLeod. We're going to take a right on church. And so the address you got was from the phone book and it was of the. Uh, it was, it was a of Jim Rutledge in the phone book, which makes sense. I mean, that maybe his wife just kept the listing. Yeah. Uh, and then when she died, maybe had prepaid for five years or something. I don't know. But yeah, yeah it's in there. The phone book also, maybe a few years
3: ago. Okay, so that's six. Six twenty seven. Oh, that's it, six nineteen.
0: There you go. So looks abandoned. Yeah, it does. It's beautiful. Yeah, beautiful house. Yeah. The house and the garage out back were empty. We talked to a neighbor who said the Rutledge's daughter had held an estate sale a year or so before. The man who handled the estate sale was named Robert Gordon. She also suggested talking to another neighbor who had known Turkey Bill. So I called her from the car. Andy was sitting next to me and could hear bits of what she was saying. Tapes 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 might exist. I think they exist. She's like she's like, yeah, he has tapes of Dr. King. Which I don't know what that is. I mean, just like And that she sent them to George Needham that she said he may have made copies. Oh my god.
3: Oh my god. The tapes are not a lie? The tapes might exist. Shit just got very interesting. If those tapes exist, that is like Wow. What a beautiful day in Selma, Alabama.
0: So we called George Needham, the guy Turkey Bill's neighbor said had heard the tapes and possibly made copies. I'm calling George Needham. Come on. Come on, tapes. Hello? I'm trying to reach George Needham. Needham told me that when he moved to Selma in the 1990s, Rutledge was one of the first people he met. They bonded when they realized they had both restored Rolls Royces. They were both into cars, both really into mechanical things in general. I was speaking earlier today with, with uh, some people in Selma about some tapes I'm looking for, and your name came up as a, a, uh, somebody who might possibly know something about these tapes. A, whether they exist or not, and B, uh, if they ever exist or whether they're still around. I told him about Saul Tepper about Tepper's claims to have recorded the Reeb trial, about how it could have been Rutledge who helped him. Needham didn't know about the Tepper tapes, but he did know that Rutledge had made other tape recordings during this era. In fact, at the request of the Dallas County Sheriff Jim Clark, he had installed a secret recording device in the pulpit of Brown Chapel AME, the nerve center of the civil rights movement.
1: He put a a, a bug in the the pulpit, and he made... 10 hours of recordings of what was going on.
3: It was an open secret that the pulpit was bugged, and eventually movement leaders would talk directly into the bug to mess with Sheriff Clark. So if it was Rutledge who placed this recording device at Brown AME, it seems within reason that Rutledge could have been the one who helped Tepper record the Reed trial. It,
1: and it could have been. Yeah. It, it really could have been. Uh, because he was that kind of a guy. So it is entirely possible he did do that. There's an, I don't think this is cogent, but there's another Heidi hole we had at the airport. He was in charge of the, the landing system at the airport, the, the lights and stuff. Rutledge was? The, every airport has a, a landing a
0: lighting system. Right. He was in charge of that.
1: Just before you get there, there's a uh, concrete building off to the side. That would be a Heidi hole if there's anything.
3: And that, right there, that incidental, oh yeah, don't think this is cogent comment from George Needham, that is how we ended up spending a day searching through the cream-colored concrete bunker that was Turkey
0: Bill's last hidey-hole.
1: This building smells like your grandma's house.
3: Yeah,
0: it does. Remember Dan from last episode? Our chaperone at the decommissioned Air Force Base?
3: This is so far afield from where we started, but it's worth it.
1: Isn't that where the best stories? Exactly. Be? Yeah. Had
3: no clue. That's what. <laughs> if not, we're screwed. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. Now, are y'all having many people you run into that just don't want to talk? Yep. As you might imagine. Are more of them older than younger? The younger people don't know anything to talk about, and then the older people are kind of of that generation. Shut up, and everybody will die off, and nobody will know anything in a few more years.
3: A little bit of that, also just people saying, "What good is talking about any of this stuff going to do for any of us?"
1: I think to some degree, it's helpful to discuss it. I don't. If you don't have a factual portrayal of what happened, I think you are bound to repeat it. If you if you document it and learn from a mistake, are you less likely to make the same mistake again?
4: Right. Hmm. Or
1: do we wait 60 years and forget we did it, and it repeats itself? But that just, I'm convinced this town can't heal till the (laughs) ones with blood on their hands die and the ones with scars die, and maybe the next generation can clean it up.
4: Mm.
1: Mm. One side's got blood on their hands and the other side's got scars. It's hard to forgive and forget at that point.
3: I think this might be the evidence that we've been looking for. Electric car into the river, April 6,
0: 1984.
3: Holy shit. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> oh man. I like that he said uh, electric car, too. Well, right,
1: supposedly, it had a small nuclear reactor that generated
0: electricity. And yes we confirmed for posterity that Turkey Bill did in fact push his supposedly nuclear-powered Chevy into the Alabama River. But there in his hidey hole, we did not find the Tepper tapes. And not finding them here, in this last best shot, it felt like waking up from a long, strange dream. But it turns out, we weren't awake just yet. It was all about to get curiouser and curiouser.
1: Chill. this is Robert Gordon.
0: We had totally forgotten about Robert Gordon. He's the antiques dealer who managed the Rutledge family estate sale. And when I finally talked with him, he said he didn't remember seeing any tapes during the sale. But talking about Saul Tepper jogged a memory of a guy he called one of Saul's disciples. He was living out in Texas somewhere. The guy's name was Jowers, William Jowers. I called William Jowers one morning when I was on the outskirts of Selma. I wasn't recording, but once he started talking I pulled over to take notes, then called Andy to tell him what Jowers had said. And he was described to us as like a disciple of, yeah. of Saul. Yeah, 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 totally. Like a disciple of Saul, a young, slightly younger younger disciple of Saul. So, he guy answers the phone and I so I'm trying to reach William Jowers. This is he uh, went into my kind of rambling Cold call explanation of, of what I'm looking for and who I am. Mm-hmm. Went through my whole spiel. And he goes, okay, let me talk. Let me talk. It's my turn now. <laughs> and so he says, first of all, the tapes exist. I have heard them. Oh, my God. And I was just like, what? They, what? He's like, yeah, I heard them. And the reason I heard them is because... Uh, in the late 80s, early 90s, we we made a time capsule. Oh my Jesus. And we put the time capsule in the concrete pillars that we put the cannons on in the Confederate circle of the old Live Oak Cemetery. You, this is not real. And Saul Tepper, that was one of the things Saul put in the time capsule. You have got tape, to be kidding a me. The cassette tape oh, that he made... Okay of the Jim Reeb trial. So I was like, cassette tape's like you put in a, like in a boom box? And he's like, yeah, 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 that's what we listen to him on. And, you know, he said the time capsule, he said, I don't know what's happened to it because they renovated, they renovated that part of the cemetery. Oh and when they gosh. renovated it, they got rid of the pillars. And I don't know, I don't know what they did with it but he said they put a sand clock outside of it so that people would know when it was put in. I said, well, when, when, when were people instructed to open it? He said, never.
4: <laughs> <laughs> He's like, we
0: just put it in there as a relic. We didn't have any instructions for anybody to open it.
3: <laughs> I don't know what to do with that. Which
0: felt very Selma.
3: It does. It feels very somewhat, but also just like, what? I, I just don't even, it, that doesn't even, I, oh, no. it, I can't, that comes into my brain and then my brain just fumbles around with it. its I don't understand, like, I, whose idea was that? And at what point were they like, you know what would be really great about this time capsule? To never open it. I know,
0: for it never to be found. I cannot believe
3: that they buried that stuff in the ground with no intention of ever taking it up again. Oh, God. Um, Oh, man. Okay, so what's next?
0: Uh, well, I think, I think Pat, Godwin, Pat Godwin, right? I mean, I think it's got to yeah. be Pat Godwin. Pat Godwin, president of Selma Chapter 53 of the United Daughters of the Confederacy and a friend of Forrest, the very person who gave us the Tepper letter in the first place. I called Pat and reminded her that we had met before. When I told her I was working with NPR, she said, I'm sorry, and then called it one of the world's largest communist organizations. I really wish we could play Pat's voice for you right now, but she declined this pinko's request to record our conversation. I asked if she knew anything about the renovation Jowers mentioned, and if so, what might have happened to the cannon pedestal containing the time capsule. She said, yeah, I know exactly what he's talking about. That renovation was mostly my doing. What about the pedestal? I asked. Was it destroyed? No, she said. Of course it wasn't destroyed. It's property of Selma Chapter 53 of the UDC, The pedestal was just relocated. Where? I asked. To my farm, she said. The pedestal with the time capsule sits on the grounds of Fort Dixie. For a long time, I tried to persuade Pat to let us crack open the pedestal, remove the time capsule, and digitize the temper tapes. But she refused. Finally, I tried one last appeal. To history. There were pretty much no records left of the retrial, I said. This was really our only shot at getting something for the historical record. If we didn't do it now, what Tepper had hoped to preserve would be gone forever. She said, don't you find it incredible that those records are gone? They don't want people to know the truth about what happened to Jim Reeb. That movement had to have its white martyrs. They don't want people to know the truth about what happened to Jim Reeb. It was like talking to a living embodiment of Tepper's letter. The conspiracy theory that the movement actually killed Jim Reeb, still very much alive.
3: So there we were, the tapes buried, entombed even, in the pedestal of a Confederate memorial. A marker to the lost cause now held the evidence we've been looking for. And those who could let us have access to it would rather let this particular story of the past remain unchallenged. The trial records, Tepper's letter, the tapes, they weren't going to tell us the truth of what really happened to Jim Reeve that night. But we found another way. And now our story is about to change. Because we found someone who was there that night, who saw it all. Someone who after years and years of silence is finally willing to talk.
4: Of course, I was scared shitless because I didn't know if they were going to get off or not. But I'm glad when they did. So, even though they were guilty, and I knew they were guilty, and they knew they were guilty.
3: Next time on White Lies.
4: with oh, a yeah.
0: Lies is produced by us, Graham Smith, Nicole Beemsterboer, and Connor Town O'Neill, with help from Catch Chiffneck. Our researcher is Barbara Van Workham. Robert Little is our
3: editor. He gets help from Nigerie Eaton, Keith Woods, and Christopher Turbin. Audio engineers include James Willits and Alex Dray Winskis. Music is composed by Jeff T. Byrd. Special thanks to Duquette Johnston for the use of this song, Crazy to Believe, courtesy of Club Duquette.
4: Maybe we're crazy.
0: archival tape in this episode comes from Washington University in St. Louis, ABC News, and WATV Birmingham. Special thanks to Stephen Longenecker, Michael Robinson, and the Alabama Law Enforcement Agency, Tim L. Penicoff and UAB's Lister Hill Library, and the people at the Craigfield Airport and Industrial Park. Neil
3: Carruth is NPR's General Manager for Podcasts, and Anya Grundman is the Senior Vice President for Programming. Visit us on the web at npr.org slash white loss.